Anyway, good morning to the rest of you guys, too. Go ahead and grab a Bible. Uh, we should have some over on the, uh, on the welcome table over here. Uh, we're going to be in Hebrews 12.28. That's the last, uh, second to last verse in chapter 12 of Hebrews. And we're going to go all the way through uh, chapter 13, verse 9 this morning. Bless you. Uh, you might remember, we actually looked at 12.28 and 12.29 last week, and that's kind of how Hebrew rolls. There's these transitional uh, verses that can really go with what came before them and can also hook into what came after them. So I decided to include those uh, today as well because it really is crucial. When we talk about Bible study, we talk about better understanding our Bibles, uh, God's Word, it is crucial to, to see passages in light of their context, in light of what came before and what comes after. And so for our purposes today, and for the next couple of weeks, as we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 13, it's crucial to understand Hebrews 13 in light of these last two verses in Hebrews chapter 12, because they speak of Christian worship. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. And so in, in 12, 28 and 29, the, the author writes, Therefore, coming out of all of what he just talked about from the middle of chapter 10 all the way through the end of chapter 12, he says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude. Uh, that, that is uh, also translated have grace. That word is grace, but it can be interpreted as gratitude as it is in some translations. Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service. That word service is priestly service. That's a word that gets interpreted other places in Hebrews as either worship of the one true God, priestly service in the temple, or idolatry, worshiping false idols. So let, by which, let us show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. We talked about that last week. And so this all raises the question, what does it mean for us to offer an acceptable sacrifice, an, I'm sorry, an acceptable priestly service, which would involve sacrifice, we'll look at that uh, a little later, to God with reverence and awe? How do we do what the author's telling us to do? Another way to put this would be, what should Christian worship look like? What should our worship? We know it doesn't look like the worship of Old Testament saints under the law of Moses, right? So then we get to the end of this wonderful letter that covers so much uh, in terms of priesthood and the old covenant versus the new covenant. And so now we're left with this question hanging over us. What should Christian worship now look like under this new covenant in Christ? Guys, chapter 13, as the author rounds out this incredible letter, is is basically an answer to this question. What should Christian worship look like? You see, to our eyes, this final chapter, and if you've read through Hebrews chapter 13 in your groups, you probably, this probably struck you that at times it seems kind of like a, like it's cobbled together. It's like a hodgepodge of different verses and different topics, right? If you've read Hebrews chapter 30, you probably walked away with that. I know I did, certainly at first. But guys, just like the rest of the letter to the Hebrews, it is a, an intricately constructed tapestry of themes and spiritual topics and, and passages from the Old Testament and different emphases. It, it's this tapestry and it's so tightly bound up uh, each passage with the other passages in its context. And in fact, 
Hebrews uh, 12, 28, all the way through 13, 19, right before he starts the prayer at the end of his letter, this whole section all the way through 13, 19 is actually a large cohesive unit. Even though at first glance, reading in an English translation, a lot of times we miss that. But we're going to talk about that in the coming weeks. So that's a larger cohesive unit that can be broken down into smaller units based on literary shape. What is the author doing literarily? And then also key words that he's keying in on to tie it together, to to cinch it up so that it can be this beautiful letter that we have. Actually, I want to show you this. Uh, Stephen, can you bring up the slide? It's not in the way it's... A chiastic structure kind of goes A, B, C, D, D prime, C prime, B prime, A prime. So the latter half is, a, is the inverse of the first half. You might be able to see this a little bit, but you see how it starts with grace, a word based off the, the Greek word for grace, and it ends with a word based off the Greek word for grace. You see the word strange and stranger that are based off the same root word. Uh, That's where we get xenophobia. Uh, uh, Philoxenia is, xenia is strange or stranger. Uh, and then you see the don't neglect, don't accept, remember, remember, two synonyms that look alike. There's alliteration. And then the, the middle two are, are two things we're going to talk about today, which is the value we place on marriage and the fact that we ought not to value money and, and gold. Okay, So this thing is, is, is beautifully constructed. One theme that ties this whole larger section together is the theme of priestly worship. And that involves aspects, this word that we're looking at for service or ministry. Uh, It it pulls in the idea of sacrifice and offering and gifts and and an altar. We're going to see that language sprinkled throughout this larger section from the end of 12 to the end of 13. And you know, worship, and I hope you can identify with me on this, worship is one of those Christian terms that can easily be divorced from its biblical context and reduced to basically the lowest common denominator, right? We do this with actually a lot of Christian concepts and, and biblical concepts, for instance. Uh, and and this, there's no shame in this. This is just how our minds work. We, we hear uh, something and we kind of use it as a, a handle for an idea in our heads. But sometimes we get it wrong. Sometimes we think of words and concepts in ways that aren't necessarily biblical. And this is something we all struggle with, which is why we read the Bible, to give a biblical context to some of these things. But when we hear church, sometimes we think of a building with a steeple on it, right? Nowhere in Scripture does, is church referenced in that way. When we hear fellowship, we might think of a fellowship hall. I grew up in a denomination with fellowship halls, where you go in and that's where the donuts and coffee are, you know? And as kids, that's where we were. Not necessarily fellowshipping, but certainly we were there for the donuts. Uh, when we hear priest, depending on what your background is spiritually, you might think of a person dressed in robes, standing next to an altar of some sort. When you hear offerings, you might think of dropping a check in a collection plate. Kids, you don't even know what a check is. That's okay. Uh, okay, you know what a check is. All right, but, but an offering plate coming by and you dropping a check, that's what we think of. That's the lowest common denominator we think of with offerings. When we hear the word service, we might think of community service like we're going to do next week on our service Sunday, or we might think of a worship service when we hear that word service. And, and finally, when we hear the word worship, a lot of times we simply think about music or singing. And don't, don't get me wrong. Like, is singing an, 
a component of worship? Absolutely. It was in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But worship is so much more than simply music or singing. As Christians, if we're confused about what Christian worship is biblically, in other words, what it means to offer an acceptable service to God, then we're not going to worship God as we ought to. We're going to tend to major on the minors and minor on the majors in that sense. And so we have to be clear on this. So the question again we're presented with is what should Christian worship look like today for us? And here's the big idea for today. It's that as Christians, we are called to offer, just like it says in, at the end of chapter 12, we are called to offer an acceptable, a pleasing service to God as, as a priesthood of believers. So what do we have to do? We have to go to God's word to better understand what is acceptable in God's eyes in terms of our worship. And today's passage teaches us that our Christian worship must involve at least three things. We're going to see that our Christian worship involves loving other Christians. It involves honoring Christ with our lives. And we're going to hone in on two examples of that. And then finally, pursuing Christ-likeness in our lives together, corporately, as a church. So let's look at those. First, our acceptable service involves loving other Christians. When you think of Christian worship, is that the first thing that comes to your mind? Loving other Christians? Loving one another? In verse 1 of chapter 13, the author gives us this generic command. In fact, it's only like two words. Uh, it's very terse. And he begins this whole, this whole uh, list of things with it. It's simply, uh, in English it's got more words, but it's simply, let the love of the brethren continue. Continue to love the brethren, your brothers and sisters, this church family that God's placed you in. But then he gives two specific examples. So he starts out with this generic, uh, just let the love of the brothers and sisters in our church family continue. But then he, he hones in on these two specific examples, helping strangers and also helping suffering saints. So let's look at those. How are we going to love one another? Let's look first at the fact that we're called to help saints, brothers and sisters in Christ who are strangers among us. Look at verse 2. It says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. So the author is using this Old Testament backdrop of of several stories in Judges and in Genesis and and various places. This backdrop of these stories where people showed uh, hospitality to strangers who came upon them. And it turned out that those strangers were actually angels of God. And the angels, uh, sometimes the angel of the Lord, I believe, in Judges, pronounces some sort of blessing or, or, or uh, some prophetic word to them about their lives or their children and other things. And so that's the backdrop that the author's using. And, and it's really hard, both in the old, old days, like in the days of Genesis with Abraham, all the way up through the first century, the ancient world ran on hospitality. We, that, that, I don't even have a, a framework for that because I grew up and you just, you, you know, the La Quinta is right there. You just, you just get a room and you're good to go, okay? That's not how it worked. Inns were dangerous places back in the ancient world, okay? You didn't want to stay there. So where'd you stay? You stayed with people that were hospitable. You stayed with people that were lovers of strangers, as we're going to look at here in just a sec. So it's really hard to overemphasize how important hospitality was. And in the early church, think about this. The church is starting in Jerusalem and it's spreading all throughout the Mediterranean world, all throughout the Roman Empire. 
And as those apostles and as those evangelists are going out to these far-flung places, places where they don't necessarily speak the language, places where they don't necessarily know many people, they're finding the church, the local churches in those places, and they're depending upon the hospitality of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to support them. They're not taking advantage of their hospitality, but they're being supported by the church in that way. Think about people like um, Priscilla and Aquila. Based on circumstances that they could have never anticipated, Caesar kicks them out of Rome. All Jews and Christians kicked out of Rome. And they end up in Corinth, of all places, where they meet Paul. Well, when you're kicked out because of political persecution, and you end up in Corinth, and you're from Rome, and eventually they ended up in Ephesus, what are you going to do? You're going to depend upon the hospitality of your brothers and sisters in Christ. The biblical word for hospitality literally means it's, it's, it's stranger and love. It's, it's uh, philoxenia, and it's, 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 it's loving strangers. And it's interpreted as, uh, translated as showing hospitality to people who are strangers. And so part of our acceptable service to God, part of our Christian worship, is, is simply offering help to fellow Christians who need our hospitality, who need us to open our homes and open our wallets and open our pantries to them. We're also called to help suffering saints. Look at uh, verse 3 with me. It says, Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Let's unpack that. The author is highlighting Christians who had been imprisoned. Now, at least for the believers in this house church that he's writing to, it seems like there hasn't been bloodshed, torture, and martyrdom yet. Although it has happened in the church. Okay? but maybe not this specific local church, but people have been imprisoned for their faith uh, for sure and, and certainly persecuted in other, in other ways for their faith in Christ. Y'all remember when Saul of Tarsus, better known as the Apostle Paul later on, but when Saul of Tarsus was the greatest persecutor of the young infantile church of Jesus Christ and he was on his way to Damascus to imprison and torture Christian men and women, you remember who appeared to him on the road and blinded him? Jesus Christ himself appeared to Paul, to Saul of Tarsus. And do you remember what he said? This gets me every time. He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Had Jesus already resurrected from the dead? Had Jesus already ascended into heaven? Was Saul persecuting Jesus as he was persecuting those brothers and sisters in Christ in the church in Damascus? He was. In fact, he goes, Jesus goes on to say, he asks, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Acts 9, 4 and 5. So here we see the head of the church personally identifying with the persecution of his body. In our passage, uh, I don't want to mislead us, when it says in the body there, there's not a whole lot of substantiation for that meaning in the body of Christ. But what it does mean is that we too are in weak Bodies that are subject to pain and suffering and persecution. And so because of that, because we share in that weak humanity with our brothers and sisters in Christ who are being persecuted, then we ought to also act as though we are are being personally persecuted alongside them. We're to identify and empathize with them. 
So to recap just this first section, our acceptable service to God involves loving other Christians, especially those who are strangers or sufferers, either in our midst or around the globe. Um, Paul illustrates this well uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's one of my favorite passages. Um, But he, he talks about the church as the body of Christ. He talks about us as fellow members of one another. You remember this language? He uses it a couple times in his letters. But in 1 Corinthians 12, he says this very briefly. He says, if one member of this body of the church suffers, all of the members suffer with it. I don't know how to be any more straightforward than that. If one of us in Christ is suffering, we are all suffering together. And think about that as I read. I'm going to read something that was recently published by The Voice of the Martyrs. There's a couple really great organizations that track persecution globally of Christians and of the church. The Voice of the Martyrs is one of the best. And uh, as they're talking about um, what is considered the second, what was earlier this year, considered the second worst country behind North Korea in terms of Christian persecution... As they talk about this country, here's what they write. This was earlier this year. Afghan Christians cannot worship openly. They must worship in homes or other small venues. And evangelism is forbidden. Christians and seekers are highly secretive about their faith or interest in Christianity, especially following a surge of arrests in the past decade. Beatings... Torture and kidnappings are routine for Christians in Afghanistan. Although waves of Christians have moved to neighboring countries to worship openly, Afghan house churches continue to grow. A small number of Christians are martyred every year in Afghanistan, but their deaths generally occur without public knowledge. A few are also in prison. And by the way, they can also be placed in psychiatric wards for abandoning the Muslim faith, the faith of Islam. A few are imprisoned, but imprisonment is not common. Why? Because Christian converts from Islam are often killed by family members or other radicalized Muslims before any legal proceedings can begin. Guys, this was written months ago, before this last week. And that's what our brothers and sisters in Christ were facing. The fact of the matter is we have brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, hundreds, maybe thousands, who are facing fierce persecution for their faith in Jesus Christ. And as a priesthood of believers, part of our acceptable service to God is to come alongside these suffering saints by offering prayers and intercession to God on their behalf. So praying for persecuted Christians is part of authentic Christian worship. Kids, remember that as well. Um, That's part of of worship that that God calls acceptable. Our acceptable service also involves honoring Christ with our lives. In verses 4 through 6, the author gives us two specific examples of how we can honor Christ in our lives. We can honor him in our attitude towards marriage, and we can honor him in our attitude towards money. Let's look at those. In verse 4, we can honor Christ in our commitment to marriage, knowing that God will ultimately judge us according to how we honored marriage vows. And this is true of people who are married, and this is true of people who aren't married. We can all come together as a community and and highly honor marriage vows and marriages. 
the author writes in verse 4, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Guys, we could do a whole sermon series on the topic of marriage and purity. That is like a never-ending need for all of us, inside the church and outside the church, okay? But we're not, we're not going to do a series on that. But for now, I just, want, I just want us to simply see that our attitude towards marriage and marriage vows and purity is an important part of our authentic Christian worship. This, it's an important part of, of, of presenting to God acceptable priestly service as a priesthood of believers, as followers of Christ, okay? And the Greek word for honor here, it's actually, it's interesting. Yes, it can be translated honor, and it, it ought to be in this context. But elsewhere in the Bible, specifically in the book of Revelation, it's uh, translated, it's the word uh, costly or precious, as in precious stones. Uh, so it's this idea of, of valuing marriage honoring it highly by assigning to it uh, a value that God assigns to it. Um, And so seeing it as exceptional and therefore respecting marriage and marital commitments. And then speaking of valuing things, we go to the next example, which in verses 5 and 6, we can further honor Christ in our contentment with money. So we can honor him in our commitment to marriage. We can honor him in our contentment with money knowing that the Lord is ultimately our helper and provider. So look at verses 5 and 6 with me. It says, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. And that free from the love of money is all one big word in the Greek. Uh, but it's, it's, the money is the word for silver. It's like, it's, it's not the love of silver. It's, it's not love of silver. <laughs> so it's freedom from the love of money. Being content with what you have For God himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, what will man do to me? Guys, and you got to understand, this is in the context of the first century where you are losing your material possessions, you are losing your inheritance by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, we can apply it too, though. If we're, if we're constantly afraid of losing our material possessions, or if we think that it's ultimately up to us to, to provide for ourselves and our families, then our priorities are going to get all out of whack, and that's going to happen really quickly. And we're going to be anxious and fearful all the time in all this. But if we acknowledge our dependence upon God and His willingness to provide whatever it is we need in order to accomplish whatever it is He's calling us to do, if we can trust Him in that way, then we can be content with whatever it is we have at any moment. And as Paul says in Philippians 4, whether I'm I'm in prison or free, whether I'm rich or poor, whether I'm well-fed or going hungry, in all these I can have contentment and peace. And that's true of us as well. So to recap this second section, our acceptable service involves honoring Christ, specifically in our commitment to marriage and our contentment with money and material possessions. The book of Daniel tells this really interesting story. Uh, It stands out uh, from the book of Daniel in my mind, but it's Nebuchadnezzar's son, and he's he's, he's the king, and he's having this big uh, debaucherous party, and he decides, hey, we ran out of wine glasses at the party. Hey, you know what? Didn't we sack that temple in Jerusalem of the one true God of the, of the Israelites? 
yeah, 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 let's bring out his gold and silver bowls from the temple that we sacked, and let's use those to have this uh, debaucherous party and drink our wine from. You remember this story? So they go and they get the vessels, the consecrated vessels from the temple of the Lord that had been sacked by the Babylonians, and they're over in Babylon at this point, and this, this king you know, takes them out to have this drunken party with them, and he's judged for that. But that's what I, I think of, that, that he was judged for what? For treating as unholy things that had been consecrated by God for God's holy purposes. Do you see the connection? Treating as unholy that which God has consecrated for his own holy purposes. As Christians, we dishonor Christ when we dishonor the things that he has consecrated for his purposes in this life. And the truth is, guys, going back to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, what is consecrated about us as Christians? Our entire self. We become living sacrifices, Paul writes. We, our whole lives, everything about us, everything we have, every relationship, opportunity, talent, gift, material possession, whatever, time, you put it all on the altar as a living sacrifice. And so our entire lives have been consecrated as holy by God. And part of our authentic Christian worship is to handle specifically our finances and our marital fidelity in a way that corresponds to God's holy purposes. And that means being committed in the one and being content with the other. So here's a simple application for anyone who's, who's married. I could come up with an application for unmarried people as well, but if you're married, if your job is negatively affecting your marriage, quit your job and get a different job. Uh, what? No, that's crazy. That's crazy talk, Ben. I'm telling you, like, a job, yeah, we can be called to jobs by God, and he can use us in particular vocational contexts for his purposes. And does it provide for us and our families? Yes. But if we're chasing our careers and it's being detrimental to our, our, our family life, our calling to be a husband, a wife, a mother, a father, then quit the stinking job, Okay? All right. Just the other day, I was talking to one of our people, and I said, it would be better for you to be the manager of a Burger King and have a healthy marriage that honors Christ than for you to be, quote-unquote, successful in your career and have a rotten marriage. When we see Jesus face to face, he's not going to ask us about our stock options. I promise you this. Jesus is not going to go, let me see that portfolio. Let me see those stock options. Wow, that was nice. And I'm trying, I I don't want to be sarcastic. I just want you to understand how important this is. Because I need to understand how important this is too. Guys, the whole world is shouting at us saying, pursue your career. Pursue making more money. Pursue getting more you know, uh, uh, building more whatever, luxury, blah, 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 blah. That's what the world's saying. Jesus is saying the opposite. He's saying, treat as holy that which I have consecrated as holy, including your marriage and your contentment with money. Christ is honored by our contentment and by our commitments, and so these are 
They're important aspects of authentic Christian worship, but they're ones we don't think about when we think about Christian worship. Finally, our acceptable service to God involves pursuing Christ-likeness. In verses 7, and nine, seven 8, and 9, the author gives us a positive command and a negative command. He says, remember your teachers on the one hand and reject false teaching on the other hand. So in order to pursue Christ-likeness, to present an acceptable service to our God, we must remember our teachers. What do we mean by that? In other words, we must follow the teaching and example of godly church leaders who look and sound like Jesus. They're saying what Jesus is saying and his apostles are saying and God's word is saying. And and because they're teaching this, they're also living it out. And so these are the people that we're called to follow. They look and sound like Jesus. Look at verses seven and eight. It says, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. So the author is going to talk a lot about church leaders in chapter 13. In fact, three different times he's going to bring up church leaders in just this one chapter. And we're going to look at the other ones later. But here, he seems to be speaking of those who had passed away by this point. Maybe it was the ones that first brought the gospel to these cities, to this city that they're in, okay, and led them to Christ first. But now it seems like that, those leaders have passed away. And notice how their authority as leaders in the church is directly connected to the authority of Scripture. This is so important for us to see. Church leaders, their authority in the church is directly and inextricably connected to the authority of God's word. If they stray from God's word, they have lost authority. Okay? That's important to understand because it happens a lot. You see it in the news all the time. You read about it all the time. Okay? Uh, these leaders, they didn't just teach God's words. They didn't just come in and fill their heads with, with this knowledge of God's Uh, the teaching of Christ and his apostles, what did they do? They also lived it out. So through their faith in Christ, they became Christ-like. And therefore, they became worthy of being held up as spiritual role models in the church because they were speaking like Christ spoke, the same truth, and they were beginning to look more and more like Christ as they lived it out. Uh, In verse 8, we're reminded that we worship the same Jesus they did. The same Jesus that they were uh, learning from and growing to be like in that previous generation is the same Jesus you're learning from and growing up to be like. And for us, uh, 2,000 years later, it's the same Jesus Christ that we're learning from and growing to be, be like. Okay? Um, he also, it's important to know this, he can bring about the same consistency in our faith, in our lives, just like he did in the lives of those leaders and just like he did in the lives of the readers of this passage as well. But there are dangers that we must look out for. Um, in order to pursue Christ-likeness, we must reject false teaching. This is the last thing we're going to look at, but, but listen carefully to this. We have to reject false teaching. In other words, we must reject the teaching and example of anyone who doesn't look and sound like Jesus. And again, verse 8 reminds us, it's one of those transitional verses that goes with what came before and goes with what comes after. But it it reminds us that the truth about Jesus is unchanging. Jesus hasn't changed. Jesus, he will never change. Look at verses 8 and 9 together. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, 
not by foods through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. That's going to get into some more of the ceremonial priestly talk in the altar and foods and such that we're going to look at next uh, in two weeks. But I want to focus on the first part of that verse 9. If trustworthy church leaders led us along a straight path of spiritual growth in Christ, which is their job, if they've led us along a straight path of spiritual growth in Christ, then false teaching, what does that do? It carries us away out of that path. It carries us away out of that straight path towards growing Christ-likeness. That's what false teaching does. And it leads to a place of spiritual malnourishment. We start num, 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 all this garbage from the internet that's not based at all on God's word, and we find ourselves malnourished, like the kid that eats all the cotton candy and doesn't want dinner. Spiritually speaking, that's what happens. And biblical truth, however, leads us to the bounty. I almost put in here the cornucopious bounty of God's grace. When it talks about being strengthened by grace here, it's really referring to this bounty of God's grace that we have through the new covenant in Christ. And that's what biblical truth leads us to so that our hearts will be strengthened to what? To persevere, to continue in this process of becoming more and more like Christ. Acceptable service to God involves pursuing Christ-likeness, which means following those who look and sound like Jesus Christ and rejecting those who don't. Uh, my wife Stacy is a pediatric dietitian, and she spent years working at Cook Children's Hospital in Fort Worth, and she would take a diagnosis, many diagnoses of, of different kids with different issues, and she would look at their diagnosis, and she would look at their uh, nutritional needs, and she would come up with a, a, a nutritional plan for them, a diet for them to, to maintain, sustain their health to the best extent possible. And she loved her job, right? Uh, well, think about, um, I mean, she had kids who burned a lot of calories, so they needed high-calorie diets, but it needed to be balanced with other things like fats and vitamins and minerals. Or maybe a kid needs more protein, and she's got more protein added into the diet somehow, Okay. This is kind of how she worked. The author of the Hebrews is like, he's a spiritual dietitian. And why do I say that? It's because he's, he's taking these people, they need nourishment to grow, and it's a very simple, it's not hardly as complicated as it was for Stacy half the time, figuring out all these different specific diets. You know what his spiritual diet is for the readers of his letter, for us as well? It's easy. It's more biblical truth and less falsehood and heresy. Increase your biblical truth, reject, cut falsehood out of your diet, spiritually speaking. And what's going to happen? You're going to grow and you're going to become more like Jesus Christ. As we follow that simple spiritual diet of increasing our, our knowledge of the truth, of God's grace and the wonderful new covenant that we have in Christ, God's word. And as we set aside false teaching, false gospels things that either, either they're non-biblical, they just don't even matter, or they're unbiblical or anti-Christian, then we will grow. Uh, it's interesting that part of Christian worship is simply learning from Scripture and then living it out. And that, I mean, again, like when we hear worship, these are not the things we think about. But part of our acceptable service to God is, as a priesthood of believers is simply that. It's simply... Um, Learning from Scripture and then living it out. So let me ask you this. What about churches, so-called, and there are plenty of them out there, that get together on a Sunday morning and do something very similar to what we do on a Sunday morning, 
but they preach a false gospel and they teach unbiblical doctrines that aren't scriptural. What about a church like that? I will put it as bluntly as I know how based on a New Testament definition of Christian worship and acceptable service to God. Whatever that church is doing on a Sunday morning, they are not worshiping in a New Testament sense. Do you understand? When we think of worship, we think of forms and, and doing certain things. And, but that's not what Jesus is, is thinking about. Jesus is thinking about our hearts. And specifically, he's thinking about are we proclaiming the true gospel? Are we teaching biblical truth and setting aside unbiblical teachings? And if we're not, then we're not really worshiping. Folks, I, I want you to know that I take my role as a shepherd and teacher really seriously. And I'm not saying that to pat myself on the back and go, oh, good job, Ben. I'm saying that because as a church leader, if I don't, I have to stand before Jesus Christ, my Lord, someday, and he will hold me accountable for how I have taught and how I have shepherded the flock here at Wayside. And that goes for our elders as well. Teachers, remember James said it best. He said, teachers will incur a stricter judgment, so not many should want to become teachers. Now, does that mean you guys aren't going to be teachers in our kids' classes? And all? No, right? What he's saying is, is that you need to take teaching Scripture, teaching God's truth seriously. You can't mess around with it and be haphazard with it. And so I take that very seriously. Because if not, we're going to mislead God's people by misrepresenting God's word and specifically by misrepresenting or obscuring the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we can't afford to do that. So if you ever think, and I'm inviting you on this one, if you ever feel like I have mishandled scripture, I've mishandled God's word, please come to me or, or talk to one of our elders, or, or, but please bring it to my attention. And I will do my best to, to show you how I've gotten what I've gotten from Scripture. And we're not always going to agree on everything in terms of interpretations of various things. But I want you to see that I'm getting that from God's Word. Okay? And I'll pay for lunch. All right? But I invite you guys to do that. So we began with a simple question, what is authentic Christian worship? And today's passage describes it as loving other Christians, as honoring Christ, as pursuing Christ-likeness. So if we're meeting together on Sunday mornings for singing and preaching and prayer, but we're not loving one another, especially the estranged and the suffering, if we're not honoring our Lord Jesus Christ, especially in matters of marriage and money, if we're not pursuing Christ-likeness together by teaching and learning and living out solid biblical truth, then folks, we're not really worshiping no matter how eloquent we, eloquently we pray, no matter how beautifully we sing, no, ma- no matter how enthusiastically I preach, we are not truly worshiping Jesus Christ. But by God's grace, remember our passage? It started and it ended with the Greek word for grace. And when we look at verse 9, we're reminded that by God's grace, we can embrace the promises of the New Testament in Christ, the New Covenant in Christ, and be strengthened to offer acceptable service to God as His priests. Um, next week, we are going to be offering acceptable service to God outside of this building, out in the community, 
as we clean up the Laurel Mountain campus for these wonderful people here at Laurel Mountain that show us such wonderful hospitality. We're going to be cleaning up the campus. We're going to be writing encouraging notes to Alyssa and the other teachers here, many of whom are our brothers and sisters in Christ that have a really hectic fall semester ahead of them. And we're also going to be delivering furniture to some of the strangers among us, the brothers and sisters in Christ who have come from places like Afghanistan and Burundi and Rwanda and all sorts of places, Syria. We're going to deliver some much-needed furniture to those families as well next week. So I hope you'll worship with me in that way next week. And then on September 5th in two weeks, we're going to meet back here to continue this theme of priestly service by looking at our call to worship Jesus outside the city, outside the gate, as we offer sacrifices of praise and kindness and generosity. Would you guys pray with me? Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this passage. It has gotten into my crawl space. Uh, It has convicted me. It has perplexed me at times. But I think on this side of spending time in in this passage, um, I think I have a better understanding of what your expectations are, what you find acceptable in terms of our priestly service to you as Christians. And I pray, God, that for every single man, woman, and child in this room, that we walk away today with a better understanding of what Christian worship ought to look like. And we pray that as we do worship you with every ounce and fiber of our being, Lord, that you would be glorified, that you would use it for the good of others and for your glory and the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.